So tonight, I have my friend Jeff. How do you pronounce your last name again? Uh, it's it's actually a Polish name. Kostek is what I call Kostek. Okay, Kostek. So I brought Jeff on today because he's got a background in, in archery for spanning, was it 30 years, 40 years? Uh, probably 40 years. 40 years. And so, and he got his start in the outdoor industry, what, in the early, mid-80s? Uh, I started probably a little bit earlier than that. I, I probably started bow hunting around um, probably about 80, 81, somewhere in there. All right, then. So reason why we brought him on is that he bring, bring, presents a lot of knowledge over the last se- several decades regarding the bow technology and his experience with PSE uh, when he went to the training school and stuff like that and then throughout the the hierarchy of all the technology that's been released over over this last um, several years. So why don't we start from the beginning? What spun you into the archery realm? Uh, well, when I was 13 years old, my brother and my mom chipped in and got me a compound bow. I was a bear, a whitetail hunter for Christmas. And my brother was doing deer drives uh, in Black River Falls with a crew. They went from on Alaska every weekend up there, and he wanted me to join the crowd and try to get in and to get some deer. And it was pretty big back then to have your have your first bow because you uh-huh. could shoot a doe. Uh, that was a big thing because you couldn't shoot does back in the day unless you had a bow with you, and everything else was buck only with guns. Okay. Gun season. So yep. So now. Now, it was at that point in time, it was still Ernebuck, then, is what I'm understanding, correct? Uh, they didn't come up with Ernebuck until quite a few years later. Um, back when I first started hunting, you could only shoot, if you were, in a, if you were a gun hunter anyways, you could only shoot a doe if you had a band around your arm. And, okay. And the way you could shoot a doe is if you had to become a two-season hunter, and that's what Bear started his big promotion. Mm-hmm. Bear started his two-season hunter campaign back in the, uh, probably mid to late 70s, and everybody got into bow hunting because they could shoot a deer, uh, a doe with their bow. Okay. It's kind of a big thing, and everybody wanted to meet. So. Now, was that pr- primarily here in the Midwest or just Wisconsin? I think it was in Wisconsin, mostly western Wisconsin was where it was big because Wisconsin was pretty protective of the bucks, you know, at, of the does at that time. Mm-hmm. You could pretty much just take a buck with a, a bow anytime you wanted to or a gun, but they were the does were protected from both. Unless you had a bow, then you could shoot the does. So. I got you. Yeah. Is this way just because of the... Not the necessarily lethality, but the likeliness of being consistent and being and like being successful because it's like there's a lot of um, energy, a lot of time and practice goes behind it. Correct? Right, right, a lot of practice, and most of the shots with the bulls that we had, the bulls weren't all that fast. You know, the top speeds and some of them were maybe 140, 150 feet per second back True. in that day. And you were lucky if, if you got a good 20-yard shot. That's what we all practiced at. And we never took shots over 20 yards, even with the recurves. You know, I don't recurves blame you. a lot closer. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And then, then what, it was 2015, 2016 the, that PSC came out with the full throttle coming at 370. So. Right. Right. And I actually had one of them until uh, I actually had one possession of one of them up to about a year ago. Um, I was in a car accident about two years ago where I tore my rotator cuff and I could not pull it back anymore. Oh, so man. I had to sell it, unfortunately. But um, but I, that was going to be my bowl of choice to shoot. Oh, <laughs> I just still had it. It's, it's, the benchmarks are really, really impressive. I have not shot one myself, mm-hmm. but I do like the carbon air. That, that was that was yep. that felt really well. But uh you know, it's not what we're, t- uh, we're that's we're we're talking about the arc of all of the right. bow technology. Yeah. So now, well, then, who, you st- when did you start? Um, when did you start working at a, a shop or in the outdoor well, I industry? Working at a bow shop, a local bow shop here around 1987 is when I started. Okay, and it wasn't until about 
1992 where uh, I became, uh, they sent me to a school down at the PSE Dealer School in Tucson, Arizona to train to be a bow technician to work mm-hmm. on the bows because they, they wanted me to learn how to take care of the bows and I, I knew archery, you know, I knew how to hunt yeah. and this thing, but I didn't know the technical aspects of, you know, putting in peep sights or surveying bow strings and that, and that's all the stuff that they taught us down there. They, we actually got a chance to build our own bow from scratch, uh, put, oh, build very the strings, fun. Uh, put in the limbs, the rocket pivot pin retainers, you know, mm-hmm, put it mm-hmm. all together. And we had spacers for the axles, so we actually got to assemble our own bow at the factory. And of course, we got to keep it, which was one nice, cool thing. I think my, mine was called the Fireflight 3D at the time, and it was a pretty nice bow. It shot pretty good. I had for many years. Very cool. Now, did you uh, did at the time was uh, target archery popular yet? Target archery was still pretty popular. It was more popular like in the late 70s, early 80s, and it was kind of waning because some of the local archery shops had lost their lanes, uh, archery shooting lanes. But there were a few of them that had picked them up. Uh, some out in Cataract. I could picked up some archery lanes, and there were other shops that in town here that were picking up some archery lanes too, mm-hmm, and expanding mm-hmm. it. Where the one sports shop where I worked at kind of lost their archery lanes, so due to like this, due to a, a road that was passing through, it cut off about half the store. So oh, um, I so gotcha. They, they had to replace, move the, pretty much the store into the rest of the building, and so they lost the archery lanes that they had. Oh, that's so, no. I, I can. I guess it was progress more than anything that caused that them to lose their mm-hmm. archery lanes. So. Yeah, when you're when you're looking at a growth period, growth on uh, spurt through the through. Uh, the town here mm-hmm. makes sense that why they had to do that, but it's unfortunate they had to lose that because I'm sure they probably lost a lot of their their uh, holding in the, yeah. in the area. And there's not yeah. a lot of development it, here it, in Lacrosse. It went in cycles too. You know, the, the you know it, some years you had really good cycles of people coming and shooting. Mm-hmm. Other years you mm-hmm. didn't do very well. So you, if you had a full time people there and you could have archery shooting, uh, target shooting, and people were there to take care of the people as they broke their peep sights or whatever as they were shooting, it was fine. But um, you had to pretty much have somebody full time doing that. So all right then. And, and for a lot of times, you know, people would just shoot out, out in their local uh, uh, target ranges and stuff, and they didn't want to pay, you know, to shoot in the indoor range. It was all real popular in the winter, obviously, but in the springtime, summer, mm-hmm. you never mm-hmm. saw anybody. So. Yeah, I could see that becoming very uh, dry, yeah, very desert like Yeah, it wasn't very lucrative, in, in that, and so that's why they kind of got out of it. Mm-hmm. 100%. And so then in 92, when you went down to Tucson, so what was what was entailed in that class? Oh, the class was, it was a week-long stay down there, so we, we flew into Tucson. Tucson, and it was kind of cool that we, we flew in at night just as the sun was setting, and it was kind of cool because the, the, the aircraft banked about 500 feet up, and I saw my first saguaro cactus right out the window. That was pretty cool. And, uh-huh. You know, almost like you're landing on a whole different planet. It was just an area I'd never seen before. Mm-hmm. It was really nice. Um, it was Pete. We got to meet the, the founder of PSE Archery, which is Pete Shapley, and at the time, I think he had a guy by the name of George Chapman that was running the school, mm-hmm. the PSE Dealer School, and basically what they did is they trained um, dealers on how to repair fixed bows and then become certified PSE warranty repair specialists. Mm-hmm. They were trying to expand mm-hmm. their warranty repair work. And so we got, like I say, we got to, a chance to put our own bow together. Um, we learned how to tie in peep sights, uh, learned how to, to square up rests, um, attach any kind of uh, you know attachments like quivers and sights and stabilizers and knuckles for the stabilizer. Anything that goes on a bow, we learned how to put on and we learned Fair how enough. to take off. So. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Then so... Uh, at that time in the in the early nineties, what was the let off like? Uh, the let offs were pretty pretty high. Um, they were fifty to sixty percent most of them. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the problems came with the introduction of the fast flight strings. Um, the fast flight strings were a lot stronger than the steel cables that were on the bows that were mm-hmm. the power cables. And the big problem that we saw was when the fast flight strings came out. 
people were buying them because oh it automatically made up made their bow you know 10 feet per second quicker but the problem was is that the fast flight cable synthetic material was four times stronger than the steel cables and what would happen if you had a fast flight string that was put on a teardrop cable bow um the teardrop would pull off okay and so mm-hmm. now you had to recable the bow and it was very frustrating for people that put these fast flight strings on you weren't supposed to do that. They found out a couple years later that, hey, if you have a teardrop cable bow, you better be using a B50 DACRON string instead of a fast flight or you're mm-hmm. going to your cables mm-hmm. apart because mm-hmm. the stress goes to the weakest point, and that was the cable and because the strings were that, that strong. And so we had a lot of problems with that. And, and the other problem was with overdraws. And if you're not familiar with overdraws, they were uh, a way of backing the rest up uh, closer to the cables and to the string, so you mm-hmm. can shoot a lot shorter arrow. Mm-hmm. Well, the biggest problem we ran into is Easton at the time, which was the big manufacturer of aluminum arrows. Mm-hmm. They did not adapt their chart to the overdraw system. So anybody, let's say, okay, I was shooting seventy pounds, and the chart said I could shoot a twenty-two uh, nineteen arrow out of it. Mm-hmm. Well, now I chop it down to twenty-six inches long, and now it says I can shoot a twenty eighteen arrow out of it. Well, you really couldn't because you, the, the rule of thumb was to, you wanted to have seven grains of barrel weight for every um, poundage of bow that you shot. So mm-hmm. if you had a 70 pound bow, you wanted to have a 490 grain weight arrow. Okay. Well, 2018 is more like a, a 280 grain arrow. So really what it happened was, is you ended up dry firing your own bow by that. Ooh. And so people were destroying their bows, they were destroying their arrows because wow. their Easton chart hadn't upgraded. It took Easton about four years before they finally got the upgraded chart out and, and moved the, the weights of the arrows up. So if they chopped them down to the over to meet the overdraw mm-hmm. specifications, it still would be a strong enough arrow to be shot at that short of, uh, of length plus that kind of weight that they were shooting out of them. Talk so about it was, scary. It was scary. Um, I, I, I never seen so many blown up bows in the years that the overdraws came out and uh, one of the big manufacturers of overdraws at the time was Golden Eagle, was a okay. bow company that was out there, and they really pushed the overdraw system, but they didn't really adapt the arrow chart. And and, and so it, Golden Eagle is one of the more popular brands that we had because they were fairly quick bows. But mm-hmm. the, the problem with them was when they put the overdraws on there, the arrows were too light and people were blowing their bows up because they're basically dry firing them, shooting too mm-hmm. light of an arrow. Mm-hmm. So we were warning people that you want to have at least seven greens per inch per weight of bow. So if it was, like I say, it was a 70-pound bow, you wanted a 490-green arrow at least in total weight mm-hmm. before mm-hmm. you would shoot it. So, mm-hmm. so now, how long were the steel strings in place for? The steel cables were pretty much in place for a lot of bows up until about maybe the really early to mid 90s. They mm-hmm. started to phase out because of all the problems they had with the teardrop cables breaking. Mm-hmm. There was a few bow companies that still stuck with them, but not too many. Anybody that did went by the wayside. And then the, the all synthetic string, when when um, I believe it was S4 and S10, I think it's S4 um, synthetic strings came out, which was strong enough to be mm-hmm. power cables for the bows. I think it, I'm going to say S4 or S8. I can't remember the actual number. Mm-hmm. But when those mm-hmm. when that synthetic material came out, they were they were turned into cables, and they were powerful enough to work with the uh, the S4 strings that they had at the time, and be able to make the compound bowl totally synthetic with mm-hmm. synthetic mm-hmm. cables, a synthetic power cable, synthetic return cable, and a synthetic bowl string. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, one mm-hmm. of the other problems that they ran into that I remember was. Uh, 
a lot of the bows, the synthetic bow strings themselves were so slippery mm-hmm. that you couldn't get any serving to stay on them. And the, the old serving was monofilament serving those like fishing line. And you could shoot it with a release. People used to attach the releases right to the bow string. Of course, in, when the string angle came back to full draw, you had a little bit of pinch there, mm-hmm. and it go and release, and it would wear in that spot real quick. And then pretty soon, after twenty shots, the whole serving would just go kablooey, and you'd have Ooh. to reserve it. Well, over the years, they developed braided servings, which mm-hmm. were better, but they flattened out, and sometimes you would clip your release on there, and you'd go pull back on the bow, and then the the um, the the string would pull pull through the the even though you never pulled the trigger on the release, the string would pull through on the release. So you had to be careful with that. And then it wasn't until a few years later where people finally got, uh, somebody came up with the idea, and I don't know who came up with it, but it was a rope loop or a D-loop that you see on mm. a lot of bulls today yeah. uh, to attach the release on. And that pretty much cured the problem of the releases you know, firing prematurely and mm-hmm. wearing out the servings on the bull strings. So, so now this was 96, 98? Yeah, up into the late 90s, you started okay. to see the D-loops and the early 2000s, they were getting, starting to get pretty popular there. Um, probably within, uh, yeah, 95 to 2005 is when the D-loops and a lot of these synthetic strings were starting to take over. Really? I get, it makes sense then. This way then it became kind of like the industry standard as right. we have today. Right, but the biggest, another innovation, you know, in the late 90s uh, into 2000, and PSE was one of the first companies to come up with it, was uh, a, a basically a split limb design. Um, mm-hmm. I think there was a few companies out there that, that were toying with it, but PSE patented the first strong split limb design where you had, you know, instead of having two limbs on a bull, you had four limbs, basically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that took out a lot of the pressure points in the sweet spots of the limb and allowed these bows to develop a lot faster speeds because they could take the extra spring and torque on the limbs without okay. snapping or breaking. Over so that makes a little sense now why, yep. like, what you see Matthews, yep. Hoyt, PSE, and Bear all yep. have... You hardly will ever see a bow nowadays without a four quad limb system. Mm-hmm. And the reason is because the bows are so fast mm-hmm. and they put so much torque on the limbs. And most of these new limbs are made of a new carbon fiber material along with some fiberglass. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the ratio is. It's all patented secrets, you know, and how they make them and formulate them. Mm-hmm. But they're, mm-hmm. from my understanding at PSC when I was working for them, is that it's a pre-stressed carbon fiber limb. So they're actually pre-stressed at the factory to be able to take all that abuse and then over time, I mean, I really, honestly, the only time I ever had any limb failures with those was when people usually dropped them or abused them. Oh, okay. They're really strong. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes when people that were, I, I called the gorilla bows, you know, when people got the big guys that could shoot the 90-pound bows, sometimes mm-hmm. you would see some breaks in some of those bows, but they were they're bound and determined to break them anyways because it's so powerful. Yeah, it makes um, sense too. But most of the guys that had a 60-pound bow or a 70-pound bow, um, the big difference there that I found was most of the guys um, didn't really have any issues with the limbs. It was usually the strings, you know. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. The the funny thing I always used to warn guys about when they came into the stores, they always had these plastic bow cases they'd flip open, and they'd have those arrows, you know, in their arrow holders, you know. Mm-hmm, yeah, I've and, seen them. Well, mm-hmm. you know, everybody puts their broadheads on there, you know, and they don't think about it, but when they Cut close string. the case, mm-hmm. the arrow falls out of the holder, and you got a nice, you know, a string under 70 pounds of tension, and a nice razor blade ticks it, you know, you, you can cut through a $70 string like nothing. Mm-hmm, you know? So mm-hmm. I just tell them, don't ever put your arrows in with your bow case, you know, keep them in a quiver outside your bow case or carry them separate. And yeah. I, I don't, I can't remember how many guys used to come in with, with bow cases, those hard bow cases and say, I opened up my bow case from last year and, and my, my bow bliss blew up on the inside. And then they hear they got razor blades, you know, all over mm-hmm, the broadheads mm-hmm. that had fallen and ticked their string all those years. So, oh, scary. <laughs> so that happened a lot. 
Well, at least knock on wood, it it, it's, it, it broke inside the case and not in their hands right, where it could cause right. some serious damage. Because right. I, I myself, I store all my arrows separate from my bow because of right. that exact reason. And um, I shoot the Elite 31. That's a single limb right there. Instead of, and it's like, for me, I, I like the technology behind it. It shoots great for me. Mm-hmm. But uh, now I, I've noticed that Elite's now moved on to a split limb platform. Right. And then the, then the other innovation, you know, also came with the arrows, with the limb materials being of that carbon fiber. You know, everybody mm-hmm. pretty much by the mid-90s were converting over the carbon arrows. Beeman was one of the biggest ones at the time. And mm-hmm. then you went into, uh, then you got into, um, they got sold out. And then you got into Gold Tip was one of the major manufacturers of the real lightweight carbon arrow. Um, and they were made in the U.S. for a short period of time. They shipped them over to Mexico and then over to China for a while there and back to Mexico. And then PSE came out with their own carbon fiber arrows and they started developing them in-house. And so mm-hmm. there was a lot of good manufacturers. Mm-hmm. And Easton was probably the last player because they were aluminum and they had to buy carbon arrow companies to stay in business because everybody had just dropped out of buying aluminum because mm-hmm. they bent and you know, they had a small bend and they throw them away. You know, carbon fiber arrow, you could shoot and you know, pull out of the ground and go shoot it again. Mm-hmm. Unless That's true. Dolly just replaced the broadhead. You know, so. Yeah. Yep. So that was, that was that was there was a lot of innovations in the archery industry and mm-hmm. and you know I could see from like pretty much from like 2000 to about 2010 that there really wasn't any very major changes you know and and there was you know stronger components that were coming out but the innovation was there and to kind of back up to your first question about the uh, uh, the, the let off uh, mm-hmm. that steadily increased and the bow's uh, speeds increased with the cams. Originally, you had round wheel cams. Okay. You know, then you had true cams, uh, which were the cams on both ends. And the problem with there was timing them and getting them in sync because you had steel cables. Then they came out with synthetic strings and they were able to time them correctly. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then, well, we got to get more speed out of it. Well, it wasn't until um, Matthews really kicked everybody in the butt, so to speak. Uh, mm-hmm. They advertised their bows. Um, at a time where nobody thought you could sell a bow because the, the industry was basically dead there for a while. Okay. And they were spending a lot of money in, in, in advertising. All these other companies were sitting on their hands. And I hate to say it, but PSE included. Mm-hmm. And uh, Matthews just blew everybody out of the water. What time what was this? Single cam innovation. Okay. Now, when did the single cam become uh, a tr- when did that When did that hit the market? It kind of, I, if I remember right, I think it was the, the late. Mid to late nineties. Okay. Um, I'm, I mean, like I say, I'm I'm up there in age, so I mean, Ooh. trying to remember these exact dates is almost impossible. I think it was right in that area. Okay. And where he really, you know, uh, and and I I met Mac McPherson a couple of times. Mm-hmm. He's a nice guy, great guy. Um, but where his innovation came in was uh, the smoothness, is what people liked about the single cam. It was like pulling a two wheel bow. But it had the speed of a full two cam bowl. And All right. They had giant cams on the bottom, and you know a little idler pulley on the top, and it was. And they did a lot of advertising, and mm-hmm. they're great bowls. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with the Matthews, and, and you know, and they really kind of force these other companies to start developing their own single cam bowls and their own single cam mm-hmm. bowl lines. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as the as the fighting, I always say, continued in the archery industry, it went back and forth between. I, I would have to say the two major players were PSE and, 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 and Matthews at the time. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. then PSE came out with an innovative hybrid cam along with that, that four, four split limb carbon fiber limb design that was okay. really tough. Mm-hmm. And with the synthetic strings, and they were able to actually beat the speed, quote unquote, you know, factor that, that Matthews was always, so to speak, bragging about over mm-hmm. the years and mm-hmm. with their hybrid cam system. And then mm-hmm. and you've seen yourself and I know you shoot Matthews, you know they do make a hybrid cam system too. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what the names of the bows are anymore yeah um, the newest one that came they got the triax the traverse right. um no cam 
and there's all solid bows you know it's right. like when I've, i this past weekend i was up north and i was shooting different bows there and i shot uh matthews pse hoyt and uh elite and it's like i just shot them all it's like they're just all of them are solid bows and it's like when you're looking at them all you're literally just figuring out like they're just you're like splitting hairs to find right. out what's gonna be comfortable for you right and there's not a lot of differences in them it's just a matter of what what it feels comfortable like you said and and the innovation mm-hmm. is I think it's kind of reached its maximum, and I don't know if you've noticed this too, but a, a lot of the differences in bows really are like in the handle designs, the the, the patterns that are cut out in the handle, because mm-hmm. they can do a lot of machining with the these you know CAD machines, and they make them fancy looking, hundred um, percent really lightweight. They're just mm-hmm. gorgeous. I mean, compared to the bow handles that we got back in the seventies, you know, mm-hmm. they're mm-hmm. lightweight, they're strong. Um, and they got really cool cuts in them. I mean, mm-hmm. I've seen some bows. I can't remember what the name of the bow was, where they actually had fangs that were. It was a kind of called a rattlesnake or something. Oh, yeah, APA fangs, and some of them, yeah, some of them had APA fangs. had uh, the really couple. Cool. They had, yeah, interesting APA. enough. Yeah, because yeah, really like APAs are like we're all. If you look at their their whole spectrum of bows, yeah. they're all around, all wrap around a snake. Right. And, and then if you look at even like Hoyt too, they're really cool. I, I, the katanas, I remember, was one name. Mm-hmm, katana mm-hmm. or something like that. Katana, I think. It was. Yeah, katanas. Those are really cool bows, you know, mm-hmm. the handle designs, and and uh, and then you also notice like and Matthews will do a lot of machining in their cams themselves, mm-hmm. light mm-hmm. up the cams. I think you know PSE went a little bit too far on some of their cams where they hollowed them out so much where they actually kind of weakened them because if you accidentally dropped them, you know, uh, any kind of distance you could bend them or crack or break them. But Ooh, okay. it's my understanding that the cam material is super strong. But when you machine out that much aluminum out of it and mm-hmm. lighten it up, you know, you lose a little bit of its strength. And so if, it, if there's any impact force that's applied to that, you know, like mm-hmm. a drop out of a tree stand, mm-hmm. any bulls, not just PSEs, but any bulls. Any bull, yeah, exactly. Because, of yeah. The, but because they're lightening up the cams too much, I think. But that's just all innovation. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. my understanding, too, from what I heard on that, is that they lighten up the cams to balance them better with these synthetic strings and so they don't okay. have to apply torque to them so that they, they, they stay nice and straight in those split limb designs like that. So I'm not an engineer, so I don't understand all the specifics about it, but that's what I understand from the people that were manufacturing them at the time. Well, you wouldn't, so, you wouldn't, you, based on what you just told me, that you, I couldn't tell you're not an engineer because right. it's like you have a great foundation of the knowledge that you were passed down for the last, dec- last several decades. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of, uh, you know, and I every year, you know, he had to relearn the new bows that were coming out, and so okay. well, that's a pretty cool, neat feature. What what makes this faster? And what I noticed um, over the years when we were selling the bows is that mm-hmm. most of the bows, uh, people got away from buying a bow that was um, uh, like a middle of the priced world bows. What what I noticed like the last ten years that we were selling bows. Mm-hmm. Is, they either bought the real cheap bow to get started in archery, and, and by cheap, I mean just less expensive. The bows were so innovative at the time. You could get a $399 bow set up, package mm-hmm. and everything, mm-hmm. and you had a great bow. I mean, so a lot of these manufacturers would have a develop, a, a, let's say, a new cam, and as the bows increased in technology, that nice cam that was on a $700 bow was now on a $399 bow. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they, they, they worked the technology down the line, so a lot of these new, you know, some of these PSE bows, bear bows, and even even Matthews that are in the three hundred ninety nine dollar range are ten times better than the bow I I hunted with for twenty years, mm-hmm, you know? mm-hmm. and they're so innovative. And then 
they were either buying the the entry level bull, okay. or they were buying the high end expensive bull. Okay, they weren't really buying the ones in between. And even though there's a lot of good incorporation of the high end features and low end features in the mid price mm-hmm, points, mm-hmm. I think what was what you were seeing is that people were either a getting into archery that just wanted, and they knew the bows were, they knew a three hundred ninety nine dollar bow was good enough to kill a deer with. Okay. So they didn't. They weren't worried about the innovation. They just wanted function, and then they skipped right over the mid-priced range bulls and went immediately to the high-end bull. And I always say the guys that bought the high-end bulls either knew what they were doing, they really loved the sport, so they always had to have the new one of every year. Or they Makes sense. One, mm-hmm. or they wanted to compare their fast bull to their buddies, you know. And that mm-hmm. was a lot of it too. You know, they wanted the fastest bull so they could say, "Hey, I got the fastest PSE against your fast Matthews, and I'll show you or whatever." You know, and there's a lot see of competition that. with it. Too. We we're we're both men. We yep. we get behind that type yep. of fascination behind who has the biggest right, fastest right. or whatever's out in the market. Exactly, and that's it, and you don't get around it, you know. But I I I, I but you know you're asking about the full throttle. Um, it was the last bow that I purchased, and I really wanted to be able to shoot it. I, mean, mm-hmm. I loved the thing when I first bought it. Mm-hmm. I was practicing with it uh, for a while, and then like I say, with the shoulder injury, I just cannot pull it back anymore. But mm-hmm. it was mm-hmm. one of the fastest shooting, smoothest shooting um, bows that I've ever shot, and it, and honestly. When I first started bow hunting, I was probably shooting 67 pounds. Mm-hmm. I think it was the most I ever pulled. And then I slowly, as you age, you lose the strength. And then mm-hmm. I was like 62, and I went to 60. At the the full throttle, when I got a chance to shoot it, I was shooting that at 52 pounds, and I was getting just rocket speed faster than my single cam bow that was like 12 years older than that. You know, mm-hmm, at mm-hmm. 52 pounds compared to that bull being set at 60 pounds. So it's just amazing the technology that they've incorporated in compound bulls over the years. I, I just, it flo- blows me away. But I think they've kind of reached their limit. And I, I don't think other than maybe coming up with a new innovative material for the limbs or a new less stretched string, there's really not much further compound bulls can go in technology. Mm-hmm. of my own opinion. But yeah, it's a, I'm I sure can understand that. Surprised. You know, I'm you, sure some engineer will come up with something better. Yeah, because yeah, when I started looking at bows in 14 till to 19, it's like a lot of the bows were very consistently like the, the, like 350, three, like from running from 300 low to 350 fps, and yeah. then you got the full throttle 370. Yeah. But it's like a lot of them really. As you're right, nothing's really changed. Right. That. Yeah, and it's like I just I think now it's like trying to figure out ways like what they'd like to traverse a 33 right. inch ATA. And, but it feels like a 35 ATA, and then you've got some of the smaller, like right. the speedboats from uh, uh, Hoyt at 28 axle axle, and that's those things just those things got a lot of those got a lot of bark. Right, right. You got the real short, you know, axle to axle length bows, which are nice, portable bows for tree stand hunting. You mm-hmm. know, you used to mm-hmm. call those tree stand bows back in the day, but um, it's just a matter of how much do you want to carry out in the woods. You know? mm-hmm. I always found, I mean, when I first started in the industry, uh, a, a general axle to axle length of a bow was 42 to 44. 46 wow. even that's um, a, was, that's... was not considered long and now you know most bows today are uh, the, the the average is 36 10 inches mm-hmm. shorter mm-hmm. um a couple reasons is the cost of putting them together so they use less material to save you know the company saves money by making them shorter mm-hmm. but i think they've they've uh, made them shorter for a lot of reasons because you don't need all that extra weight on the bow to okay something and and people are kind of finding that that 36, I, I've heard of people having them down to 28. I think mm-hmm. the smallest one I ever shot was a carb, uh, got it. I'm going to say carbon hawk golden eagle was 30 inches. Mm-hmm. I think the shortest one I ever shot. And it shot pretty nice for a little mm-hmm. short bow. Mm-hmm. So um, I wasn't a fan of, I wasn't going to hunt with it, but I, I did shoot it and I got a chance to shoot it. And I thought, man, this isn't too bad. Yeah. You know, so. 
Yeah, I got tree stand. I guess you consider mine a tree stand because mine's a, a 31 axle axle from, from Elite, and it's just like it shoots great high let off. Um, IBO speed of th- mid, like I think it's like 343 or something like that. But it's like I shoot with uh, my uh, FOC is like if I'm shooting aluminum, it's f- just over. 500 mm-hmm. but if i'm shooting carbon fiber it's right around that 450 mark right. but now it's like i've been, I've been experimenting with higher uh well, i don't want to start looking at um, heavier arrows mm-hmm. just not here excuse me not heavier arrows but heavier broadheads because i've been hearing a lot of people getting really good success with the higher focs now right. i want to fall i want to re- re- rewind back to the 46 inch bows like mm-hmm. when did we start like why were they so long well, back back in the days, you got to remember, um, brace heights were longer because most people were finger shooters. Okay. There okay. Were not, there were not a lot of people that shot mechanical bow releases, mm-hmm. so they shot fingers. And if you have a long axle axle like bow at full draw, the string pinch is a lot less on a finger shooter than it Makes would sense. be with a guy with a release. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. as releases start to get more popular, they realized finger pinch isn't a problem anymore. And and, and basically, and if you know the difference between a release and finger shooter, is basically when a finger shooter shoots, he actually torques the string. Okay, makes it's sense. Back at full draw. So mm-hmm. what happens when he goes to the release? Not only does the string oscillate front, front and back, but it also oscillates left to right as it comes to a rest. You don't have that problem with a release when you have a mechanical release. It only oscillates front to back, mm-hmm. almost side to side whip. So you get kind of like this S whip to the string as it comes to a rest, mm-hmm. and that's what used to throw your arrow left to right, or what people would pronounce as fishtailing of the arrow. If they torque ah. the string too much in their hands, or they torque too much, and when they pull back, they wrench their hands like this, or turn their fingers almost horizontal, mm-hmm. and like mm-hmm. go. You get that fishtailing or porpoising effect of the arrow as it would will combinate with the arrow, and so that's the reason for the long axle to axle length bows because most people back in the day were finger shooters just like they did when they shot recurves, ah. and then as the mechanical releases came about and innovation came about, then the bows mm-hmm. started getting shorter, and there was no reason to worry about that anymore. Oh, I so gotcha. Took, took away all the fishtailing, took away all the porpoising. So when did mechanical reach uh, releases really start taking over the market? Um. Oh, almost right away when they started coming out with some decent ones. I think was this like the, like uh, late eighties or nineties? More in, in the nineties. Okay. Early ninety four, ninety five. Okay. I think is when they really took mm-hmm, off because mm-hmm. other manufacturers were coming in with really nice releases. You had uh, True Fire <clears throat> and uh, True Ball were two of the major companies that I mm-hmm, remember. Mm-hmm, the Win Free Flight <clears throat> Free Flight release was a really good bow. Mm-hmm, or, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, real good bow release. Um, I'm trying to remember one that was real popular was a trophy ridge one, but it used two ball bearings mm-hmm. uh, to pinch the string, and a lot of people used to attach that that release directly to the bowstring. When remember when I talked about the strings being monofilament served, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well, that would pinch that monofilament because there was two sharp points of two spheres together like that, two ball bearings, mm-hmm. and a pinch getting between there, and it actually cut the, the makes sense, out. yeah. Mm-hmm. So they started developing hook releases and little tabs that would come out so it wouldn't mess up the serving on the bowstrings. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So even releases have innovated regarding the bowstrings, servings, and the types of strings that are being shot too. So the, the, even the even the, the the release companies had to adapt to all the changes. In true. The it makes sense too because like um, I sh- I personally I shoot a True Fire. Love them. Mm-hmm. You have True Ball is still out there. And you have Carter and you have Scott. Those are like kind of the top ones but like Carter is one of the, the is the top echelon when yeah. you're looking at 300 plus for the release. Now I I've shot them before. They're they're not comfortable for me because I have bigger hands. So, right. but for those who really appreciate the the, the curvature, because they're like almost like a like a uh, like a 
your uh, your bow is like a race car, but your release is your racing gloves. And it's like right. having some of that small, that small, it's like you, you can feel everything as you're drawing back to get your anchor point. Exactly. And, and most of the releases that are out there, um, it's just a matter of getting a bunch of them in your hand and trying them. I mean, if, mm-hmm. if you go to any archery shop and they say, this is the only release you need, that's that, it's like trying a pair of gloves on. You got to find a pair that fits, find mm-hmm. a release that feels mm-hmm. good, and, let, and shoot a couple of bows with it. They should allow you to shoot some bows with the release so you can try it out. Yeah. Or at least your own bow. Bring your own bow mm-hmm. in and try mm-hmm. a, bunch, a bunch of different releases. That's, that's what I do when I, because like I was shooting shooting um, Trigger mm-hmm. when I was my first one, and, and it's the Hurricane one from uh, yeah. True Fire. $20. Well, it's, at the time it was forty bucks. Why well, happened to go into uh, one of the most popular selling ones we had? Was yeah, hurricane. yeah, and it's like well, then it's like I can't I went into a Menards in uh, up in the cities there, and they had it for twenty twenty three bucks. It's like sold. I bought it there because it's like I I always I when I was when I bought my first bow, it's like I bought all my accessories. Right. So when I bought everything, it's like here you go, throw them all on there. Right. Yep. And I get I would get some I would get some weird looks from the, the Bowtech guys, but it's like you know it, it's it was one of those things where it's like I couldn't afford everything up front, so I just right. broke everything exactly. out. And there's a lot of good ones out. There. Yeah, but it makes sense though to try different ones. I, I saw that a lot, um, I, I, and I think guys make a big mistake in, in buying all new stuff all the time because I mean, for God's sakes, a quiver is a quiver. You mm-hmm, know, it mm-hmm. holds the arrows. It's all it does. You don't need a fancy new quiver that's mm-hmm. seventy five bucks when it, your other one for thirty bucks does the same thing. I transferred a lot of people's stuff to their, you know, from their old bows to their new bows, and you know, if you like the new bow and, and the new and you got a new release with it, you really don't need to replace the sight or anything down the line. No, uh-uh. you want to. Mm-hmm. But um, there were a lot of guys that if they had the money, they would dump it too. You know, they'd get rid of everything they had and sold their bow with everything on it, and they'd buy a brand new one. So it's, it's, st- it's still a trend. It still to this day. Yep, it's still yeah. They still do it to this day. Mm-hmm. And that's and, and people do that with guns as well. You know, but with bows. Um, you know, the innovation is changing a little bit here, and I think this stuff has gotten stronger. I mean, obviously, you know, you probably don't have a plate sight, you know, the you old know, plate sights with the T pins anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, you got the new fiber optics, and you mm-hmm. see the new innovation. Oh, these are cooler, you know, but I don't think you have to buy that stuff all right away. You no, know, I don't you think shoot so it for a while. You know, you already paid for the bow last year. Well, maybe next year get a sight for it, and then next year maybe get a new release or a quiver for mm-hmm. it if you want to upgrade. But you don't really have to dump it all on the bow at, at one time. Yeah, currently I'm using the HHA, and it's like I, I love the single pin, but yeah. it's like hunting whitetails. They 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 move too much. Yep. So I'm just gonna get. I'm just gonna replace from the, the one pin. I'm just gonna replace it to a, a, yep. a three or four pin, right. and be perfectly happy with it because yep. it's like I, I don't have to worry about pin gapping, and it's like the, the innovation's there. Right. And, but I already have the the, the platform, the mount. It's like why well, I don't ever need to go to something different. Right. And the HHA was one of the major sites that we sold a lot of. It was mm-hmm. a great, great mm-hmm. site, very well made. Yes. Made in Wisconsin. Too, made, yes, exactly. You are right. All machined aluminum, and they're very well made sites. So yes, they are. Uh, the one prior to that was Check It. They were big company that that used to get into the target archery there's mainly all alaska mm-hmm. check it archery and they kind of went out of business because the owner got up there in age and he passed away and and there's a couple companies outers i think took it over there for a while but they never really kind of innovated after that on it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. side but there, there were some really good sites out there i think sherlock um, is pretty much the, the premier one but yeah, it's really kind of spendy like, that's kind of like your target site um toxonics was another good brand mm-hmm. that i remember we sold um uh, we, we sold mostly HHA, HHAs and uh, I'm trying to remember. Oh, and PSE had some really good series of sites in their line because mm-hmm. we were a PSE dealer at the time, so they had a lot of nice sites too. I, that makes complete sense. And then when it comes down to the arrow rest, how long? So, like how, what was the premier one in the 90s to oh, get? 
a while, I'd have to back up even back further back than that. The premier one in the 80s was definitely the TM Hunter. I mean, it was a two-pronged arrow rest mm-hmm. uh, where you'd shoot the, the odd-colored fletch down. Okay. And so it would ride the, the prongs would ride the gap between the two hen feathers, and so you wouldn't strip the feathers off your arrows. And back in the day, feathers were more popular than plastic veins are like they are. Plastic mm-hmm. veins are a mm-hmm. lot more popular today. Mm-hmm. Um, feathers are just pretty much gone by the wayside uh, because the arrows have gotten so fast and they're so much stiffer. You don't need the stabilization of lighter weight feathers anywhere. You can get by with what two inch veins nowadays on yeah. and arrows. But uh, the big thing was um, um, the rest. TM Hunter was the biggest seller, and we sold some Hunter Supreme rest, which were a launcher and a burger button on the side. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then as you got into the mid '80s. Um, or later 80s and into the 90s, um, they were kind of falling by the wayside. They were added to overdraws, and they were still kind of popular. Mm-hmm. And then I think it was, I'm going to say mid-90s, the Whisper Biscuit came out. And what was nice about that is that was the first capture rest. And remember, you go back to pulling back a bowstring, your biggest problem is holding the arrow on the rest. Mm-hmm. Um, and got you had to guide it back with your finger. And when it got back there, you know, if you were pinching the, the string too much or you, you torqued your hand too much with even the release, mm-hmm. you could kick the arrow off and make a noise if you were to hear that and take off. Well, mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. nice thing about the capture rest is it's completely surrounded the arrow. Mm-hmm. And as you pulled back, you could pull it back to full draw and be real quiet about it. You're mm-hmm. traveling on real quiet bristles. And you could shoot uh, and get back to full draw and not worry about your arrow falling off. The rest That's true, yeah. Um, and there were a lot of good, a lot of other companies that tried to innovate and make better capture rests. Um, by far, even when I uh, when we quit selling bows at that time, that was still our number one selling rest was the Whisker Biscuit mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because it was simple and it worked. Yeah, and that's all you need bow hunting. You know, it's, it's anything that's simple and works well, sort of like a scope on a rifle. It works great for long distance shooting. Why change it to anything else? You know? I agree with you 100 because like when I first got my first bow, all I had was just that. Then I started listening to uh, Dudley, and he was talking about limb driven. Um, devices right. for drop downs, and I then I found the uh, SmackDown Pro by purely by accident, and then that was who, that was what the uh, the popular one was in Rochester here four or five years ago, mm-hmm. and it's still and it's I've just been seeing variations of all mm-hmm. of the limb driven out there, and it's like I right. very consistent, great looking uh, uh, rest, and I I had no problems dropping my my deer. Mm-hmm. And, and, the, you know, and then the, the whisker biscuit capture rest kind of innovated into fall away rests um, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. the idea was to eliminate that extra friction on the arrow and give yourself a little bit more speed. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Fall away rests were, were popular, but there was a couple that worked really well. Um, I had a PSE one. I can't remember what they used to call it, but it worked really well. Mm-hmm. Um, it had a, you know, full, almost a full circle that captured the arrow and mm-hmm. as it came up, it would prop the arrow up to level and as he shot the arrow would clear before the rest would drop down mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. there were other ones um god i'm trying to remember um ripcord was another good one um that we sold a lot of it was a very good it was a two-prong rest that held your rest and as you shot it it just completely flipped down um and there were other ones that were really good um those were the two most popular ones that i remember putting on bows mm-hmm. the PSE and the ripcord ones so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they were very popular because i think uh, i think uh was it HDQ is one of them that still uses a, a form of the ripcord. Yep. Plus, it's like there's what they also have. What makes it so popular is that you can raise and lower right. the rest with, with the click of your finger right. as if it's a trigger, yep. which is what I think is a, is very handy, especially yep. if you're at full draw and it's like, oh, it just didn't work out. So, you're able to drop it back down, wait for the next opportunity. Yep. Well, one of the things that you know they had used to have back in the late 70s was a thing called a stay jack, and it was a little piece of rubber that kind of held your arrow on the rest until you got about halfway through your draw, and then it would pull away mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. keep it on your so you didn't have to guide it with your finger. And over the many years, there were these little flippers that used to hold the arrow onto the TM Hunter rest, 
if you put it on just right, it would hold it on at full draw and it would flip up out of the way as you shot. So it was like a built-in arrow holder. They worked really oh, wow. good. Um, I, have a, I might even have one in my boxes, old school. It's like uh-huh. a little pl- piece of flexible rubber that had a little half moon cut in it that mm-hmm. pinched the arrow down. And you could adjust it up and down and put a little bit more pinch on it. So as you drew back, your arrow stayed right on the rest of the TM Hunter, so you didn't have to worry about it falling off the prongs. And as you shot, it went right through. But then uh, as they came out with the capture rests and as they came out with the innovative uh, fall-away rests, they mm-hmm. pretty much cradled the arrow at full draw anyway, so mm-hmm. you didn't have to mm-hmm. worry about it flopping around there. But you did have to pad the usually the bottom part of the rest or the arrow shelf with some moleskin to keep it quiet. So yeah, that's that's, that's still, still in practice yeah. today. I have it on mine. Yeah. I have it. I think I put it, I even threw it on my daughter's bow really? just because it's like it, it's one of those things where I want her to feel mm-hmm. like she just because daddy's buying the best stuff, right. she doesn't mean she can't have the best stuff right. for her bow too. Right. And I, that and, and by far that was probably one of the most least sold things that we had, but was the most important thing I think on a bow is that moleskin mm-hmm. because if you moleskin wrap your, your your shelf and get that you know get that thing quiet because you never know when you're going to take an arrow accidentally too hard you know even a carbon arrow against a metal handle bow will make a noise and mm-hmm. it's all that deer needs to hear you know how big their ears are and they're like yes. radar they can they can pick up the slightest sounds and so you, the quieter you can make the bow and and that's another big innovation as far as the uh, uh, in the bows over the years you know back in the day we always just had string puffs that we put on the bowstring what is a string it was a little piece of yarn you wrapped around the bowstring mm-hmm. and you kind of put it in there and you push the two halves together and it kind of looked like a pom-pom on the end of the, the bowstring. Mm-hmm. And they absorbed the vibration. People used to take old rubber bands and wrap them around the string and kind of suck up the vibration from the string being mm-hmm. playing, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And then as um, then a company called Sims Vibration Labs came out and they came out with all kinds of string dampening devices. Mm-hmm. They came out with, uh, well, Matthews uh, pretty much took the same type of material made their monkey tails and PSE made, or a couple companies made ones called spiders that you could insert in between the strings to muffle the strings. Mm-hmm. And then it came mm-hmm. out with a whole slew of stuff was uh, the same dampening material got incorporated into um, uh, fall away rests, uh, little pieces you could put on your quiver, um, and then the limb savers you mm-hmm. put on your limbs to dampen the vibration of the mm-hmm. limbs. And then mm-hmm. it went even so far as to going into the stabilizer. And stabilizers started being completely made out of the same material mm-hmm. to really suck up the noise and the vibration. And, and and the big thing with bow hunting is being stealthy. And if you get yes. a quiet bow, you can really be very good a very good hunter because mm-hmm. you don't have to worry about your bow making any noise. That's that is probably a big. I think yeah. that's a very thing a very um, strong asset to, the, to these days because right. even on the bows that I even the current bow I have. I don't even have a stabilizer because it shoots that well without right. a stabilizer. Because I, I tried a couple different weights on it, and it's like I shot better without it. I was more consistent, and it felt lighter in my hands because now I, I subtract that weight off the bow. And one thing you'll notice probably about your bow is how quiet it is compared to mm-hmm. any, any previous bow that you've ever had. I'll, I'll guarantee you that a new bow um, will be 20, 50 times quieter than a bow that you had just five years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just mm-hmm. amazingly quiet nowadays mm-hmm. and with the way they're, they're made and the, and the tensile strength. And I think it has a lot to do with the computer generated, uh, and I'm not an engineer, but like I said, these engineers, you know, the, the tolerances have gotten so much tighter and so much better. Mm-hmm. And because of that, in the computer technology, they're able to make that nice technology cheaper now. Mm-hmm. And so the bows are that much better. And like like I said, even a $399 bow is just as good as any any $2,000 bow out there. They'll kill mm-hmm. it just as dead. Mm-hmm. It's just mm-hmm. a matter of what, how much money do you want to spend on the technology? And that's, everybody always used to ask me, what, why is this bow this much more money? And it was always the newest technology that was mm-hmm. on the more higher priced bows. Mm-hmm. That was mm-hmm. it in a nutshell. That's the only thing that makes that bow more expensive. The new mm-hmm. innovative limb material or the new 
um, handle design or the new color of the handle, whatever it was, that was always the reason why that bull was more expensive than the, the one that they had last year because it had the newest features. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And as they got, you know, as those features waned or maybe they didn't sell so good and they had to come up with a new idea for next I gotcha. year, then they got more expensive. So yeah. Makes complete sense because it's like if you are not staying competitive, like you with your experience, right. like you like you mentioned several companies that are no longer in existence mm-hmm. anymore. It's like being competitive is the biggest key to the market because right. when we when, when any anybody that's in the outdoor industry whether it be fishing or hunting or camping or whatever mm-hmm. they always want something that's going to provide the better value right. over the price right and then and another thing you saw in the in the archery industry is um them incorporating and buying other companies mm-hmm. uh, I think the last company I remember being bought out, and I'm not sure who bought them out. Truefire got bought out by somebody, uh, a bow company or something like that, bought out Truefire releases. And mm-hmm. They were incorporated into another release company. So you had all yeah. kinds of different buyouts in the archery industry over mm-hmm. the last 10 mm-hmm. years because the little guy can't make it anymore. They've got to they be a part of a big conglomerate because archery is, is so competitive yeah. um, in the industry. And bow hunting in general, I don't know if it's fading or not. Um, I I think the archery in schools program has really been an asset to getting kids started in archery. But mm-hmm, when mm-hmm. I was a kid, it was really big. I mean, everybody wanted to get a bow just so they could shoot a doe. Now mm-hmm. it's everybody wants a bow because they want to be like uh, I'm not sure what, the, what these uh, you might be more familiar with the TV shows. Uh, they, they had the bows and arrows on. Uh, yeah, like uh, Lee and Tiffany, Cameron right. Haynes, Joe Rogan. Right. I mean, th- some of these th- these people have brought in a lot of new people. Right. Like I got started be- in in bow hunting because of Joe Rogan because of the way he broke it down in such a way that made sense. Like being able to provide for your family, looking at yourself like that, and it's just a lot of fun. And it's like I always tell people that, like if you, if you're stressed out, the best way to like it's, it's like, once you once you draw a bow back. All your stresses and all your distractions disappear. Right. It's like I'd spend you could spend shoot fifty arrows down the down the range, and it's mm-hmm. like, what was I angry again about? Yeah, the, the concentration it, because archery takes concentration to mm-hmm. be good at it. Um, and and you gotta there's so many things going on. Your, your muscles are moving. Your mm-hmm. eyes are looking down a sight. Mm-hmm. You're you're making sure that you aren't torquing your hand. You're making sure you're you're easing into your release trigger. There's there's a million things that are going on when you draw back a bow. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But you know yourself. Um, you know I always say when. I, you know, somebody always says, you know, well, how do you shoot you know, when you shoot a deer? How, how do you say go? I, I say, I don't, that, that's the last thing I remember is pulling the trigger on the release on when I shoot a deer. I, I just remember, you know, when am I going to take a shot? That's That was my biggest thought in my mm-hmm, head. Mm-hmm. What is this deer going to do next? And if he steps out there, that's going to be my shot. So, you know, they always say pick a spot. Mm-hmm, uh, not mm-hmm. only pick a spot on the deer that you're going to aim at, but mm-hmm. pick a spot where you're going to shoot him at. So mm-hmm, you're not shooting through mm-hmm. brush and you're not, you're not aiming at something you're not supposed to be aiming at. Yeah, or so, shoulder blade or something right, like that or hit right. the guts. And, and, and don't, you know, you, you, how I say bow hunters are their own worst enemies. They mm-hmm. get things in their head and they... they 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 immediately get distracted. They they can get distracted, mm-hmm, but the, mm-hmm. if you if you learn to when you go to the practice ring, learn to concentrate on each and every shot, it'll become natural instinct when you're out in the woods and this deer walks by. Mm-hmm, it's just mm-hmm. gonna be one solid motion. You're gonna pick your spot. Okay, and I, I remember the last buck I shot. Um, my brother, we were um, I shot this one five years ago, and this was with my compound before, like I say, before my shoulder injuries. And mm-hmm. I remember we were on his land and. Uh, um, my brother told me that I have a tendency to move too much, and uh, he he made he took me back behind the tree stand, and he says, "Here's I want to show it to you as to why." Well, I didn't realize the lay of the land behind the stand where I was. I was facing out towards the open field, and the deer always came from behind us. And I remember we walked behind there, and we, as we were coming down the saddle, we had to come uphill to my stand. Well, guess what? When you're coming uphill to that stand, that 
buck is looking directly at you. <clears throat> and if you're moving, mm-hmm. he sees that, they take off because they were always snorting on me and I was never getting any shots. So he said, if you hear something behind you, like it's squirrels or whatever, just sit still and let them pass you. Mm-hmm. And that was, mm-hmm. it was the best advice I got from him. Well, one night I was in that stand and I heard some walking and it didn't sound like squirrels. I thought it was a deer and it came off to my right hand side. Okay. And as it was coming in, I just remember um, when he got behind a tree, I mm-hmm. really stood up and turned and pulled back my bow. And okay. guess what the deer does? He stops. So now I'm at full draw and I'm at, I think that bow was set at 57 pounds. It was just a single cam. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh God, how long is he going to take? And you know, it seems like an hour that he's going to take mm-hmm. two steps. Mm-hmm. But he actually took uh, three steps, maybe under 10 seconds. Okay. But I picked my spot where I needed to shoot him. And of course he stopped right behind the last tree. And all I needed for him was to step out one more time. And as he, he, he moved his left front leg forward, and then I, it's just as soon as I got the clear shot, I picked my spot. He was in right where I wanted to mm-hmm. let it go. The arrow went in, and it was the first and only deer I ever saw that ran away from me, and I saw it drop. Mm-hmm. All the other deer I shot, they went over the hill. I never saw them fall over. But this one I saw about 60 yards away standing, mm-hmm. and just dropped over dead. I was excited because I knew it was a buck, and I knew it only had one horn. That was a strange thing about it. It only had one horn on it. But I said, Got yourself a unicorn buck, saw, huh? Yeah, I saw that buck, and I said to myself, you know, um, that deer's body is huge. Mm-hmm. I just saw the mm-hmm. size of its neck. That's a mature buck. I said, he's going down. And mm-hmm. I don't care if it had mm-hmm. one horn. I wasn't, personally, I was never a horned hunter. My brother was, mm-hmm. but he, he, he picked and chose his shots, but he also hunted for meat as well. And um, I remember, um, I, I knew where it was, but mm-hmm. I wanted my brother to help me track because he, he started me in archery and he always let, you know, I just let him do it. I knew where it was, but I'd let him track it. And mm-hmm. so he goes, well, show me where he shot, show me where he stood. So I did that. This is what we always did even when, we were, when I was first mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And And my brother, Brian, was a really good bow hunter. And so, and as he walked, he found my arrow. He goes, whoa, he says, you got a lot of blood on this or you're going to get this deer. And he kept walking and walking, following the blood trail. And I stayed behind him about 10 yards. Mm-hmm. And he goes, oh, I see him over here. So I, I, I knew where it was, but I let him find it. And, 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 <laughs> you know, to this day, he'll probably hear this podcast. I, know I was, yeah. was kind of lying to him a little bit. But I just wanted, you know, it's fun to see him. And, you know, my brother never really said anything about any deer. You know, he'd say it's a nice one. And my brother never swore. Okay. Know? Okay. And, and the funny thing about this one is my brother was never a man of many words. And he walks up to this buck and he, he kicks it with his foot. He puts his hands in his pockets of his you know, hooded sweatshirt jacket like this. Mm-hmm. And I won't say the word here because we're on a podcast, but he says, he goes, Jesus H, that is an effing hog. <laughs> that's all he said. He goes, and it was, and it turned out, it, it dressed out at 268 pounds. <sighs> that and was a and my brother goes, my brother says to me, he says, we got to take and butcher this tonight, he says, because it's going to take a while. And it did. It took mm-hmm. us like two and, you know, we were pretty quick at butchering because we were good at deer. Mm-hmm. When we put it on the scale and he pulled it up to the ceiling, it actually was dragging on the bottom of his garage. So we had to suspend the legs and we got 268 dressed on it. We have no idea what it was live weight. I'm going to guess probably closer to three. Maybe it wouldn't high, surprise high me. 280s, 290s, mm-hmm. somewhere in there. The funny thing of it was, is we had such a hard time getting it in the car because he wanted to get it. It traveled onto the neighbor's land, and we didn't want to gut it on the neighbor's land. Mm-hmm, and so we mm-hmm. traveled, traveled, put it on his land, and we were having so much fun trying to put that thing in his little forerunner <laughs> that it was almost impossible. So I had to go inside the vehicle, tie the neck of the deer around the head, tie the, the rope around the headrest, and then go back out the car and lift the body of the deer back. Oh, and funny. It was just amazing. It took us like a half hour to figure out how to get this deer. Oh, in it's, it's just like kind of what happened to me, too. because You know, it's like lifting dead weight. You know what it's like. Oh, I mean, man. It, it doesn't my, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Because what happened with me is when I shot my deer, it jumped on somebody, it jumped on my neighboring property, 
and then he wasn't at home when it when it when it expired. So it's mm-hmm. like we had to come back the next day to get it. Well, it's like I had to knock on the door at six o'clock in the morning. He wasn't the most happy camper. But right. I, I was telling Alicia that's like I'm not going to gut it on his property right. just because I don't want this guy to be harassing me in the stand. Right. And so, but it, full rigor was set into place. So I had to. I, Dragged it all the way across the guy's driveway to the to his to the neighboring yard. I talked to, oddly enough. I talked to the, the guy that earlier the, the following the previous day. That it's like yeah, it's he, he had no problems with us doing it just in case it ran over there. Because I got I secured a permission early, so this right. way if we decided to oddly enough just run, or, uh, run a different direction, I could be able to walk in. So I just pulled it all the way over there, got it right there. But we had you know the car I pulled up in tonight. I we had to put that deer. In the back seat. That's a small car. <laughs> uh, no, actually, it, well, it, it appears small, but that trunk is absolutely huge. Yeah. See, in 2008, it was the last year that Fusion Fusion uh, put the big trunks on it because mm-hmm. it looked too much like a Taurus. Right. Well, then in 2009, they shrunk it down. Right. I'm glad we had that big trunk because <laughs> it, it's like, because yeah, the, the rack, the head and the rack were inside the back seat. We had to flip it all down. We got the body back in there. It was great. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's just amazing how much fun it is to try to cram a deer into a trunk or on the back of a pickup and my brother was mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in the hatch. It was, it was just an absolute nightmare because, we, because you know, my brother says, don't you ever shoot anything that big again? He says, because I'm not helping to drag it. I mean, mm-hmm. literally, he, he went where it died on the lower part of the logging road and he took all the bows back to the car, which was about a three-quarters of a mile away and came back, you know, to help me pull it up. Mm-hmm, and in, mm-hmm. in probably the half hour that he was gone, I only dragged that deer about 40 feet, 45 feet. I mean, wow. it was just it was just so heavy, and it was just I could not budge it. And so we, we always had that thing, you know, if we ever got a big deer or one of us got a big deer, we always called the other person up at night, you know, and mm-hmm. says, hey, come on down, help me drag this one. Mm-hmm. Gotta mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we did that, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I did that a couple times with him when he shot ones when I wasn't with him. Yeah. So, yeah, it was, it's, it's a good teamwork thing. But It's what we had to do with mine because this is it a full rigor. So I got the uh, back uh, backpack straps when you just doing the, the ropes like eight feet long you know, wrapped it around it and it's like i'm pulling it with all my weight right. so it's and i'm six uh two two fifty at the time and it's like and the leash is in front of me so we're, we're all pulling at the same time <laughs> trying to move this thing up hills through the cockaburras it's not, in full rigor yeah, I, I i i know your pain yep. and I, I just honestly don't know know if i'll ever uh, you know i don't know if i'll ever get a big a buck that big again like say right you know, right now i'd be using mm-hmm. a crossbow only because of the shoulder injuries but mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. i plan on going last year but i think maybe i might go this year because i didn't have enough time to practice last year and i want to get a little bit better with the crossbow what crossbow are you shooting this year um, would- i bought a crossbow before uh slightly mm-hmm. a couple of years actually before i had the shoulder injury but i bought a um a 10 point uh, oh god let me think of it um it's a ten point something or other. I can't remember. Yeah, but at least you got you. You know, you got something you're gonna be confident. Something, but I got mm-hmm. something. But I did take it. I did get a chance to shoot it at practice, and mm-hmm. I had two arrows touching that forty yards, uh, dead center in the ring. So I thought huh, I can take a take one out to forty with that. Mm-hmm. Um, the the crossbows are another innovative thing that they've come up with over the last few years. Mills have gotten really fast, but yeah, the have. unfortunate thing with a crossbow is you know they get up to around four four fifty some of these crossbows now. Yes, but the unfortunate thing is one dry fire ruins them. <laughs> so the, you got to be real careful mm-hmm, with dry fire mm-hmm, crossbows. Mm-hmm. But some of them have incorporated now some of the new uh, anti dry fire mechanisms. That's crossbow. very true. So. And and you know and that was an argument that uh, we always had at the arch at the shop where I worked at. Um, 
a lot of these guys were true bow hunters, you know, and they used to frown on guys that shot crossbows and because mm-hmm. it was originally just for handicapped people. Mm-hmm. And they mm-hmm. said, well, they're not bow hunters. Well, you know, the, the, the guys who shot recurves used to say that same thing about the guys who had the compounds. They're not real bow hunters, you know. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, I think anybody that shoots an arrow at a deer, uh, whether mm-hmm. it's a crossbow, I, I, obviously there is a skill of difference. I, That's very true. I will, I will give that to anybody who's a bow hunter. There's a big skill difference between mm-hmm. a guy shooting a bow Mm-hmm. And shooting a crossbow. A guy mm-hmm. with a crossbow has so much more stealth because all he has to do is aim and pull a trigger. Okay, he doesn't have to go through the draw motion. He doesn't have to worry about the deer detecting him. Mm-hmm. Uh, if he just raises his bow up like a gun real slowly, he should be able to get the deer. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. I'm not saying that she can't be, you know, it, it's a lot easier to be stealthy with a crossbow than it is a compound bow. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, so I, I will still say it to this day that a guy who shoots a deer with a regular compound bow, a recurve, or a long bow is, a, uh, is still a little bit, I would say he's still maybe a little bit better hunter overall than a guy mm-hmm. that has to just shoot a crossbow. However, with that said, um, for a guy that shot a bow his whole life and wants to shoot a bow his whole life but cannot shoot his bow his whole life but still loves archery, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm glad there's crossbows because yeah. now I can still enjoy the sport. So I don't frown on anybody that, that shoots a crossbow or decides to start their kid out on a crossbow mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because you want to get them hooked on the sport. It doesn't matter if it's a bow or a, a crossbow. It's sort of like if you get your kid his first rifle when he gets his deer with a rifle, he thinks it's simple. Now he's going to try it with a shotgun. Maybe two years down the line, he might want to try it with a muzzle loader or a pistol. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. It's just get them interested in it, and you know you can make it as easy as you want. You spend as much money on your kid as you want, but I don't think it matters. Just get them interested in something. Other I agree, one hundred percent. You know, yeah, because so. we're our own we're our own uh, advocates against such things. Like and, being so tribal and, with these different all, methods. Sometimes we're, wrong. we're our own worst enemies. We fight mm-hmm. between ourselves, and there's no reason to fight. So yes, an, uh, an archer is an archer, a crossbowman. Is a crossbow person, but they all love the sport of hunting. bottom line. Raw hunters. Yeah, that's raw all it hunters, is, and that's that's what really counts. Mm-hmm. And that, that you know, we stick with our laws. You know, it, it, there's room enough for everybody in the woods. And yes. you know yourself as a bow hunter, you more than likely got your own land that you hunt. Mm-hmm. On, okay, mm-hmm. and if got lucky if, if that. you're not a crossbow person or you don't like crossbows, you're not going to let those guys on your land hunt. You're going to hunt it yourself. And mm-hmm. These same guys who maybe like me that can't shoot a bow, but now go, I can go on my brother's land. My brother say shoot whatever you want okay okay mm-hmm. now i can go mm-hmm. hunting you know but if you know I, I wouldn't be able to go hunting if somebody didn't allow me to hunt on the land so yeah yeah and you know it's not like somebody's going to take all the big bucks because you know i would say bucks are like rabbits you know for every one you see there's 50 of them that you didn't you yes know? that's and, so true you know if you think about all the years you've been hunting and how many giant bucks have you really seen in all the years you've been hunting i mean mm-hmm. really trophy bucks it's it's few but there's yes. a lot more of them out there than people think mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it's just a matter of being in the right spit at the right time and knowing your land and knowing where those bucks like to move hands down man i agree with that completely because uh i was before i before i got some acupuncture on my left elbow i was thinking about to switch into being a cross getting into crossbow hunting but Mm -hmm. i there's nothing wrong with them it's like i I, it's like for me and my property though it's like i want i want to let either crossbow or bow hunters hunt because it's like don't have a lot of room for gun hunters and plus it's like everybody is comfortable and uh, with with me and i don't have a lot of bow hunting friends with me very often go out with me besides alicia but uh it's if anybody if those who don't have access to right. land then I, had, I have no problem opening extending my hand to those right. who have a crossbow or a bow hunt. 
guns, it's one of those things where it's like it's, just, it's a neighbor thing. Right, exactly. Yep. yep. And it's just, you know, if you're good with your neighbors and the guns work out fine, that's fine. You know? mm-hmm. But, but mm-hmm. to introduce a kid, you know, um, you, you know, every, you know, there's kids that are going to get lucky their first year and there's kids that aren't going to get lucky their first year. I had a friend of mine that said uh, he, he gave his son a crossbow and he was all upset because his son was 16 and he shouldn't be shooting a crossbow. He should learn how to shoot a ball first before a crossbow. Okay. I'm like, no, not really. But I remember I remember running into this kid on some land next to the land I was hunting on. Mm-hmm. And this kid had got had just recently got out of school. He drove his parents' car. And I was watching this kid and, and, and I knew who he was. And, and he walked with a bucket of of uh, his junk in there, you know, he had, all, he had a five-gallon mm-hmm. pail he was going to sit mm-hmm. on, and this kid went out by himself up this steep hill, you know, and I knew where he was headed because he hunted very close to where I was hunting with this crossbow, and I thought, hey, that kid's doing that all on his own. He's not with a parent. Mm-hmm. He's having mm-hmm. fun. He's going out and enjoying it. Well, so be it. You know, mm-hmm. let him do that. What is I wrong agree. with that? Yeah. You know? So what if he's using a crossbow? If he gets a nice buck, uh-huh. or even a doe for that matter, he's going to be a happy camper. You know? Yeah, exactly. The, the, the fact that he's, he has the motivation himself right. to do it without to do it, without yeah. anybody dragging him along, you know. And he's gonna he's gonna find that sport that he's gonna enjoy that for life, you know. And, and, yeah, exactly. There's people we have trouble time trying to get him get him out of the house to get a job. Right. He's out there right. wants to get out and be be uncomfortable trying to get himself some food. Some, some food, exactly. Mm-hmm. You know. So there's nothing wrong with that. You know. I mean, when I was 16, I couldn't wait to get out of school. Going mm-hmm, hunting squirrels mm-hmm. or rabbits or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and it was nice to see somebody that young doing it all on his own. You mm-hmm. know, he had his lucky had his driver's license. You know, I honestly think it might have, I think it was 21, but you know, or have mm-hmm. a car to drive at the time. I was mm-hmm. with my brother, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. but uh, it was nice to see this kid doing you know that all on his own. hiding phone them for shooting a crossbow. So, what? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and plus, it's legal me to take. I have nothing wrong with it. It's legal, let him use it. Yeah. Is there any other uh technology you want to talk about any other tech um, that comes to mind not really i think most of the most of the stuff that i've seen on the bows like i said have been has been into the machining of the cams and the yeah. bows and the very tight tolerances and i think like i said any bow any bow that's made today mm-hmm. is better than any bow that was made just five or six years ago hands very, down hands down it doesn't matter if it's a low-end bow or a high-end bow mm-hmm. um, so if you haven't updated your bow in 25 years you're in for a treat to get them one of these new bows and, oh yeah and just you know spend some time and shoot them exactly them, you know so now since we're coming to the end of the podcast i asked all my guests these three questions first question is what is your favorite uh, um game to hunt uh or I, dream hunt i should my, say my favorite dream hunt would be well I have done it with a rifle, but one of my dream hunts was pronghorn hunting, and I did do that with a rifle okay. back in 05 and 07. But I think if I, uh, if physically I'm not able to do, I, I know physically I'm not able to do an elk hunt, so mm-hmm. that would have been one of my dream hunts if I was physically able to do it. I think if I if I wanted, uh, I would seriously still want to shoot if i could if i could still pull a bow back or even with a crossbow i think i would still like to maybe shoot some miriam's turkeys uh with a bow or a crossbow those are pretty that was one of the one of the animals i still I, the, the white feathers on them just intrigued me mm-hmm. and I know they're dinosaurs so let's shoot them you know? yeah I mean, okay who could say they shot a dinosaur with a crossbow? my next question is, is is what is your favorite meat to eat it doesn't have to be wild game it can be it can be any meat you like to eat favorite meat to eat yes um, wild game no, it doesn't have to be wild game. It could be anything. It could okay. be baby back ribs to chicken. Oh well, it, it, I'll narrow. I'll, I'll go two phases. I'll say favorite wild game to eat. Believe it or not, is squirrels. Uh, I think they're very tasty. Mm-hmm. I make a killer squirrel noodle soup. Um, bar none, though, it's probably fish, and fish? it's probably going to be salmon. Very smoked oh. salmon by far. I could eat 
eat that just about four times a week. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> in fact, I got one in the freezer right now. It's an oh. Atlantic, uh, Alaskan, Atlantic salmon, or Alaskan Pacific salmon. And mm-hmm. I'm take that all tonight. No, you just reminded me. <laughs> there you go. So you got to dinner for tomorrow. <laughs> and funny. my final question is, what is your favorite fish to catch? My favorite fish to catch is probably, nor- I would have to say, well, I was going to say northern pike there, but I don't want Cam to hear this. <laughs> I'm river fishing northern pike. My favorite fish to catch is trout. Mm. Bar none, I am a brown trout fisherman. I love trout fishing. Yeah, you tell me about that. Some of some of your so, you, want, you got a couple of them you want them out too. Yeah, I I I I had to back off on those. That you know, taxidermy has gotten pretty expensive. Yes, it is. And I realized that those three fish that it was going to cost me over fifteen hundred to mount, and I said, "Wow!" <laughs> so so I, I decided that I'm going to fillet those. So I've got enough twenty inch fish on the wall, and I said, "The next fish I'm going to mount." Has got to be over the biggest one that I have is twenty seven. So it's a brown trout. Brown trout. Wow, so that's, that's a that's a dinosaur right there. That's, that's a big one. <laughs> so any trout that I catch uh, from here on out, it's going to have to beat that, or it's yeah. not going to get mounted. I just don't have. Honestly, God, I, and I, I, I'm not going to say this, but I don't have the wall space really to, to do it. <laughs> I gotcha. One of these days, you come on over, and I'll show you why I don't have wall space. I'm, I'm excited so, to check that out. So I'm hoping you guys had enjoyed this podcast. There was a lot of information, a lot of history that I had no clue about. I wanted to bring them on for that exact reason because it's like I want a history lesson into archery that I just I've only been in for a handful of years and now it's like listen to somebody that's seen technology change so drastically over the last four, uh, 40, years. 40 years yeah it's just it's amazing so thank you Jeff for coming on and, and talking well, with us you're very welcome Jeff thank, thank you for having me I appreciate it you're welcome thank you